This is the Balanced Dilemma. We tackle the often uniquely, but not always, female dilemma managing life, work, family, and self. I'm Maura Carlin. And I'm Christy Derrico. At The Balanced Dilemma, we speak with women and men to hear their balanced stories. Our guests are entrepreneurs, reinventors, creators, parents, and partners, telling us what we really want to know. How the heck did they manage that? And can you have it all and all at the same time? Today's guest is Chelsea Conaboy. Chelsea is a health and science journalist whose motherhood journey led her to ask questions and explore her own changing maternal brain. The result is her new and first book, Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Rewriting the Story of Parenthood. Now, at the risk of spoiling the punchline, Chelsea concludes that maternal instinct is more of a myth than reality, at least from the perspective of neuroscience, and that anyone can have a mother brain. Welcome to The Balanced Dilemma, Chelsea. I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you both. Let's start at the beginning. Tell us how you got where you are, your upbringing and education. Sure. I grew up in in Rhode Island and um, knew from um, really the start of college that I wanted to be a journalist. And I went to school for journalism at the University of New Hampshire. And straight out of college, I started working at a small weekly called the Concord Monitor. Sorry, a small daily newspaper called the Concord Monitor in New Hampshire. And um, I was there for about five years. And went on from there. I worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Boston Globe and moved to Maine where I live now um, to work at the Portland Press Herald as an editor and um, really um, I I became um, I I really like developed a a love for, for narrative storytelling and then eventually for health and science reporting um, and kind of married those two things with this book. Um, but I, I worked at the Portland Press Herald for three years until my second child was born, and I went out as a freelancer and um, started writing about various topics focused on public health um, until I really kind of became obsessed with this topic and decided to pursue a book on it. And that is exactly what we're excited to hear about. So let me just ask a question. This is something we've asked many of our guests. So you did have the desire to pursue your education. Did you always want to be married and to have children? Yes, I I did. I think I, I grew up in a pretty conservative Catholic family and I think it was just kind of always assumed that I that I would do those things. It was never really a question um, for me that I wouldn't. So how about blending your work obligations with becoming a parent? Was that easy or did you find your job uh, Uh, flexible in terms of motherhood? Does anyone say it's easy? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Um, uh, It's interesting because I actually... You know, I, I loved working for newspapers. I loved the um, career that I had in newsrooms. There's a particularly um, a particular culture about about n- newsrooms as workplaces and the kind of work that you do there. That is really kind of um, in one way addicting. It's really fun. Um, but when I had my second child, and I knew I was staring down the reality of having two kids in daycare. And I asked my bosses if I could go um, to a flex schedule of still working full time, but only four days a week. 
And they said, no, um, I didn't really have a choice to stay in that anymore because we we couldn't um, we couldn't frankly afford two two kids full time and, and daycare. And um, and I wanted the flexibility to be to be with my kids more and to have more options. And um, so that, you know, I, I had started thinking about different avenues my career could take but that kind of forced my hand so the answer is no it wasn't easy I've, I've been fortunate to find um to to have success as a freelancer but it's um you made it work yeah I mean it's not like so many of us do but it it could have it there it wasn't easy before having children had you and your husband discussed how you were going to manage it For sure, but we had a really un- unrealistic view. Of how <laughs> well, as most go. of us do. Tell us, tell us. <laughs> yeah, we love under- I mean, unrealistic for, views. <laughs> for one thing, we laugh about this all the time. When we were looking to buy our house, our first house, we, you know, had had worked out like a household budget to to figure out what we could afford for a mortgage and and anticipating childcare. And the we had used. Um, you know, our state had like a calculator for average childcare costs, and we had like put it that put that figure into our budget. And the reality was that that was an average for across the state, where there's a lot of variability. But in our metropolitan area, full time infant care was about twice that figure. Right. So, and that's we, the reality. Planned, but that's yeah. the reality so many people face. So let's yes. turn to why you began researching mother brain. What happened yeah. in your pregnancy or your postpartum time that made you question things? When I was pregnant with my first my first child, I, 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 you know, I was an editor at the newspaper. I was, I felt like I had a very capable kind of confident place in my life. You know, I had a, a strong marriage and a good career and I I think I had a sense that I could read everything that I needed to know about parenthood and, and that I could I could manage it. And then my son arrived and he was on the small side. He was he weighed less than six pounds and um and I was just overwhelmed with worry. I worried about whether he was getting enough food from me, I worried about his safety and like my broader ability to care for him for the rest of his life. And then I also worried about the worry itself I felt like it was maybe crowding out these other things that I was supposed to feel in that time like you know the overwhelming warmth and certainty at having arrived at this time of life that I had anticipated so much and I really went looking for the words that could describe what I was experiencing and found them in research specifically on maternal anxiety but that led me to this broader broader picture of how how the brain changes in new parenthood and how that's true for everyone, not only those people who experience postpartum mood and anxiety disorders, but the, the hormonal shift and the exposure um, to babies who are these powerful stimuli for the brain uh, changes the brain in the short term and, and for the rest of our lives. So I, I just have a question. Here you were juggling two children, one who had some issues. What type of writing schedule did you keep? Did you write at night or how did you squeeze in the work that you had to do? <laughs> Christy herself is a writer and she's very big on <laughs> yeah. the schedule. Well, it's not just it that. I mean, Maura and I uh, have done motions as lawyers having babies and I just remember having a little one in my lap while I was typing and I'm yeah. thinking of you having this career. How did you, how did you juggle that? 
So at first, um, I did a lot of writing early in the morning at, at during nap time and and late at night. My husband is also self employed. He's a, um, a photographer and and video producer and um, and editor. And and so we both <laughs> we we have gotten accustomed to the juggle. And you know this all changed through the pandemic when suddenly we had you know there was a time when my my oldest was in preschool my youngest um we had a nanny for a couple of days a week but then on the other days i would do that writing snatching time when i could but then um and i would you know be scrambling to finish something before he woke up from a nap and then we had to go off to to pick up my oldest then the pandemic changed everything i um we had no child care and my husband and I were self-employed and sort of scrambling to keep it together, you know, when um, his work fell off in the early pandemic. And we basically split shifts all, all day, every day, including the weekends. We would do half days um, at, on and half off and then um, frequently went back to work in the evening. So it's been rough. <laughs> it's starting to settle out again now that our two kids are in school, but it's, um, it's rough. Well, I bet that you uh, you use the word nap time. I, I, I never actually was able to utilize the nap time. Many women say nap when the baby naps. And for me, nap time was the time to get stuff done. And it sounds yeah. like you did, did the same thing. And did you find that your husband experienced the same anxieties that you were experiencing becoming a new mother? I think he experienced them on a different timeline and level of intensity my husband has been very involved as a father and and um at first I felt I feel like his anxiety was um because I was anxious you know he he was like nervous about helping our family settle in Chelsea we're gonna take a break uh, right now we're gonna come back and talk about what it means to become a mother you're listening to The Balanced Dilemma. We're speaking with Chelsea Conaboy, the author of Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Rewriting the Story of Parenthood. Chelsea, in the book, you write, what does it mean to become a mother? And that the question feels dangerous. What it, why is the question dangerous? It's dangerous because right there, inherent in this question is the idea that we, we are changed. So And so often through history that has meant we have become something something lesser a lesser version of ourselves something lesser than men something lesser than people without children forgetful frazzled compromised somehow and so i think it's often kept us from really asking asking that question and looking squarely at this transformation did you assume that motherhood would come naturally whatever that means to you Yes, I did. I, I, I knew it would be hard, but I thought um, I was ready for it. And so, therefore, there would be, you know, these, these biological mechanisms that carried me through even those hard first days and that I was, that I was capable and that, that, that with some also kind of ingrained notion of, of maternal instinct would, would be enough. And did you assume that motherhood would be different or the same the first time around versus the second? 
I don't think I had a good sense of how those would be different. Honestly, I I knew it would be hard. I knew that so you know everyone tells you everything changes when you have a child, and so I knew that I would have this like upheaval to my lifestyle and my sleep schedule, and um, you know to my work life balance to some degree. Um, but I did not have a good sense of what it would mean for my, for for sort of my internal life and my my sense of myself. Well, you talk about and you title your book Mother Brain, and you also say, but the mother brain is not synonymous with the female brain. It is the one engaged in li- the life-supporting practice of mothering. Talk about that. We have, um, yeah, so I, you know, I, on the one hand, I wanted to honor the fact that mothering has has historically been been done by the people we we look at as mothers, that they, these are characteristics we often um, assign to, you know, associate with, with, with females, with mothers. But at the same time, this, this life-sustaining practice of, of caregiving is something that um, is, and I, I quote poet Alexis Pauline Gums in the book, that it's older, older than the category woman. Um, and, and that's, that's true this work of caregiving by people beyond just mother figures has been done by by um has been true for humans from even the the earliest humans it's always been part of our evolutionary history and so this is this is really the caregiving brain that um adapts us to take care of one another to recognize another person's needs and to figure out how to respond to them. So this has been a theme that we have carried through in many of our episodes. Guest Frank Schaefer, who wrote the book Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, he professed that, and I quote him, I want to be a mother. And Frank found uh, that as he uh, went into this new phase in life, becoming a grandparent, that he stepped up and became a caregiver. And he's pointed to research in his book that supported your finding that uh, maternal behavior is not, in fact, exclusive to women, but men or even in situations where you have adoptive children or things of that nature, you can develop these feelings and responses and skills that are not exclusive to women. And your book is uh how much did you find that individuals changed in this manner not exclusive to gender so uh, the when it comes to like the the brain imaging research that i highlight in this book the overwhelming majority of it still has been done in cisgender gestational women but if there's a growing body of research in fathers and in other parents that looks at the structural and the functional changes in their brains and how they are changed by the, the same factors that affect gestational women by, by, by shifts in hormones and by experienced parenting. And in fact, there's one really important study um, that came out of Israel that, that basically showed like a, a, a dose effect that the more time fathers spend in, direct, in a direct role caring for their for their children, the more connectivity there were in particular parts of their brain that that are um, thought to aid in how we 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 read and respond to other people and that social cognition. And so, there at a really fundamental level, care the experience caregiving changes us. <laughs> and there have been similar studies 
or, or similar findings related to changes in the brain with adoptive parents and foster parents. And I, that research only continues to grow. There was just some new research just published on fathers. But um, the, the something that's really, that I've really tried to drive home with this book is the idea that we've really uh, oversimplified the idea of whose biology makes them capable of being a really good caregiver. And it's not just mothers. It's really whoever engages in that process, anyone who commits their energy and attention to their children. So are you distinguishing, um, Frank does, distinguish it between nurturing versus parenting. Are you making that same distinction? Hmm. Um, I guess. Or you're putting uh, nurturing with caregiving. Yeah, I would say caregiving. It, it depends what you mean by parenting, because I don't think this is limited to just biological relatedness, which might be the distinction that he makes. But caregiving, um, caregiving is is a is an act. You know, it's a it's it's something that we do. It's the commitment that we make with our with ourselves to take care of a another person, and and that's really what I'm talking about. I'm this book is just focused on the context of of parenting, but a lot of this research applies to caregiving in other other contexts. I talk a little bit in the in the book about the role of of daycare providers and nannies and others who do this work on the regular on a regular basis who've become specialized caregivers and how we should value that their work. And do you think they can substitute fully for the role of a parent? You know, I, I'm not sure that's a question I can entirely answer. I, I think um, that, you know, there, there are so many different circumstances from family to family. I mean, there are plenty of examples of, of families in which a parent is not a good caregiver. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, in fact, they might be harmful. Um, so I think that a a good caregiver is what, um, or even multiple good caregivers, are is what a child needs, and that can take various forms. Well, if I understand you correctly, I think some of your, um, you know, hypothesis can be applied to improving caregiving skills in anyone, or parents, or otherwise, and not just exclusive to children, uh, caring for the elderly, caring for uh, people with disabilities. I think it has multiple applications. Had you considered yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that one one aim of this book is really to look at this adaptive process and we're going to stop there because we're going to take a break and when we come back we're going to talk about that adaptive process and maternal instinct you're listening to the balanced dilemma we're speaking with chelsea conaboy chelsea i want to talk about maternal instinct i think christy wants to talk about it too (laughs) this idea that women are naturally motherly Uh, you came to a different conclusion as i understand it uh, that it's not unique to women tell us about that I so you know I've I've written a whole book here about about the neurobiological changes that that we go through when we become mothers, um, and that 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 is real, and those those changes are deep and profound and transformative and long lasting. But they are not uh, an instinct. You know, an instinct is a rigid idea. It is a fixed pattern of behavior and um, the idea that maternal instinct as um, you know as this capacity for for caregiving that is innate automatic and 
uniquely female, that's a, a myth. You know, it's not any of those things. It's something that it develops through a process. It takes time to grow in us. It is shaped by lots of different forces in our lives, and it can develop in anyone, as we said, who's really committed to that work, not just um, women who give birth to their children. Well, in the book, you talk about maternal instinct being a social construct, almost depending on whether women were needed in the workplace or not. Can you, I mean, you traced it pretty yeah. far back. I mean, I remember a reference to Darwin. Can you uh, talk about that? Because I think people don't realize uh, it, it wasn't always this way. When I started looking at the science, I thought, really, why aren't we talking about this more? And I realized that one reason we're not talking about it is because we have this other narrative around maternal instinct that feels like it's science. And so I traced back to see where did that that idea come from and where was it written in the scientific theory? And it really came, it came from this moral model of mothers as, you know, wholly committed to the work and um, self-sacrificing. And that idea was written into early, early psychology by by religious men who um, who really took took those beliefs and kind of cloaked them in science and and did so at a time when mothers really were scrambling for more rights the right to vote the right to own property they were upending the gender norms of their day and there was really a very clear um, doubling down on those gender norms and the writing of maternal instinct into scientific theory was was a part of that. And feminists of the day actually said, we see what you're trying to do here. You're trying to look, you're trying to make mother mothering look easy, and it's not. And how did they convince women to go along with this? To believe that they had some yeah. special power? I mean, it came, it came from these, you know, these re- religious ideas anyways that many people subscribe to. But I think one, one thing that has made this idea so sticky that has helped it to hang on is that it kind of feels true you know i call it this classic case of disinformation of something that seems seems plausible gets repeated over and over until you you just believe it implicitly and it feels true because we do change (laughs) you know we do have have these different behaviors kind of come online after we have a child and we see you know the protectiveness of of um, our friends with their babies, you know, and we relate to that to the idea of like the protective mama bear, and um, we see what those changes see those changes happening all the time. Someone has named them for us as a maternal instinct, and so we kind of accept that as truth, even though the scientific reality is is something different. So I, I want to quote from your book. You state that we know that motherhood is neither duty nor destiny, that a woman is not left unfulfilled or incomplete without children. But even as I write these words, I doubt them. Do we collectively believe that? And the question I want to pose to you is, um, there's a book by Sylvia, Sylvia Ann Hewlett that reported that 42% of women she had interviewed in corporate jobs had not had children by the age of 40 and that most deeply regretted it. And one of the uh, vocal uh, people these days on this subject has been Cameron Diaz, who became, she's a self-described older mother. And she had dis- discussed the pain of almost not being able to become a mother. 
is how do we reconcile what you're describing here this nurturing that could be anyone with this biology that does seem to have a ticking clock is that what you were referring to with this quote oh interesting i i i mean i think that there are are both scientists and feminist scholars who would question the idea of a ticking clock being biological versus you know social pressure or or just desire of a person because lots of women don't have a ticking clock so i i mean i think the idea that that something can be an instinct um you know a fixed pattern of behavior but also for there to be such broad variation across society those things don't aren't aren't reconciled either um and and i guess what i meant in that quote was was really you know i i think most of us would recognize that there's that broad variability that people want different things and and yet i do think that um uh, so much of how our 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 society and our social policies are structured um hinges on the on the nuclear family and the idea that that women will become mothers and and um and what that means um for everything from you know reproductive rights to family leave, to our tax policy. So what about those women who do feel a pull to stay home? Is there something biological or in neuroscience about that? Because it's, I mean, I think we all know people who really felt like, oh, I've had this child, now I want to be home, and they didn't realize they, they'd feel that way. I mean, I certainly remember being pregnant and people saying, oh, you'll feel differently once you have the child. I know lots of people who felt that they changed and we've had guests who've basically said that I, I yeah i think that that is so again there's wide variability but i think that one one thing that we don't um talk about enough is how you know i, I said at the beginning of our conversation of how i felt very capable at the start of my pregnancy and so i thought that that would carry me through and i did not have an appreciation for the kind of deep transformation of myself that that motherhood would bring and I think that's some of what you're getting at is that we do some for some people and some people I quoted in the book said that they anticipated wanting to go back to work uh, immediately but then they have all of this both worry about their children and the sense that they have had created a nurturing environment for them and that they didn't want to kind of let other people into that or or give up what they had created and they wanted to stay home home more i think that uh, you know there's certainly some neurobiological underpinnings to that i don't think it happens for this for 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 um people all in the same way and I, a lot of it has to do uh, one big factor is like what kinds of social supports do you have what kind of flexibility do you have at work you know there's just so many variables that, that go into those decisions for each of us so i just want to go back you touched upon your husband and that he might have had a um uh, you know, his anxiety level might have mirrored yours a little bit. I recently read an article with regard to f- men and fatherhood that between 2012 and 2018, the percentage of childless men ages 15 to 49 responded that they did not want children, uh, that those who did not want children doubled from almost 10% to over 20%, and that the number of men concerned with parental leave policies when evaluating jobs decreased from 2005 to 2015. Now, 
what can we say about men and these responses and these developments? Uh, did, did you find anything in your research on this topic? Or from your personal I experience? Seen, I, yeah, I haven't seen the numbers that you're talking about specifically, but I do know there's a lot of anxiety among young people right now of having, having children because they see people struggling without leave. They know what the, pa- the pandemic meant for, for parents of young children. They're worried about climate change and the economy and other things. And so I think that there's some, what you're describing among, among young men is also um, happening to, to a large degree among women too of deferring or perhaps not having children at all. To you, the second part of your question, I mean, I, I I'm, am optimistic about the degree to which fathers men who are having children are engaged in fatherhood and are um, really experiencing this kind of transformation for themselves and I am hopeful that they will have a bigger voice in shaping uh, paid leave policies and other uh, other policies that support young families moving forward if they actually have, have felt the vulnerabilities that come with that and the compromises that have to be made Um, I'm hoping there can be a better voice for it moving forward. And we'll be right back. This is The Balanced Dilemma. You're listening to The Balanced Dilemma. We're speaking with Chelsea Cannaboy. Chelsea, your book's about neuroscience, and I know it's quite complicated, but can you simplify it for us? Maybe start with the relationship between neuroscience and biology? Yes, I, I I think the the where I would start is that is that what babies need from from their parents at the beginning is their attention, and so the parental brain really um, changes in ways that make us extremely attentive to our baby's needs um, at the beginning, and so there are these brain regions that are involved in motivation, in meaning making, and in vigilance that are really highly in those early postpartum days and weeks. And it really serves two roles. One, to keep our babies alive and also to to make us pay such close attention that we kind of go into this intense period of learning. And it's thought that over time, um, this sort of shift to a more regulated state, we get um, better at regulating. It's thought that we get better at regulating our own emotions and we fine-tune our ability to read what our child's needs are to predict those needs and um, and to respond to them. And there's one idea in the research that I just love, which is that, you know, all the brain systems that are involved in um, kind of detecting our own emotions and our own needs and, and predicting those are essentially extended to now include our children. And so it's sort of like our, our, our sense of ourselves. Um, grows to encompass them as well. So I want to take a moment to let our listeners know where they can find us. On the web, go to thebalancedilemma.com where you can listen to old episodes and sign up for our newsletter, find show announcements, show notes, resources, and further reading. Follow us on social media at The Balanced Dilemma Podcast on Facebook and LinkedIn. Email us at balancedilemma at gmail.com podcast episodes are also available for listening on apple itunes google and spotify and chelsea's book can be found at her website motherbrainbook.com thank you christy you know i i couldn't help you know, when reading the book on the neurology p- part of it contrasting um the human baby experience to that of some other animals and i kept picturing april the giraffe giving birth <laughs> and uh you know 
the baby comes out and with a few nudges gets up and walks away, whereas human babies require an awful lot of care for an very, very, very long time. And you write about the uh, helplessness and cuteness of babies with their big heads and their bright eyes. Can you just explain more to our audience about that? Uh, I'm so glad you asked this. Yeah, so there's there's um, uh, uh, some fascinating work that looked at why, looked at what role that helplessness in human development and also you know humans are diverged from other primates by having babies close together needy very needy babies in quick quicker succession than any other ape and um, the way that it's thought that they were able to do that was because they had help human mothers have always always been really important but they've never been enough and it's thought that in, among early human families, the people who probably were doing that work of helping with child rearing, um, there, at least one dominant theory is that they were grandmothers. They were women who had um, lived a little bit past their own reproductive years and started helping their daughters to raise their grandchildren. And they passed on both their longer living genes and also their capacity to really connect deeply with babies that they had not birthed themselves. And it's thought that that really swung open the door to caregiving among humans to make it not only something that happens between mothers and infants, but that can happen between other adults and infants as well. Interesting. But you also talk about your Aunt Marion, 13 kids, mm-hmm. 12 kids in 13 years, is that right? Yes. And yeah. they became, the, the ch- other children became caregivers as well. Yeah. Yep. A similar situation in these large families. But I guess part of where I'm going is, why is it a surprise that men are capable of caregiving? I mean, I think of all the men I know who have either not married or not have children, but become caregivers for the elderly in their families. And trust me, they're not cute. Um, so I guess I come back to that myth that this is a woman's job. I think it's a great question. Why? Why should it be a surprise? Maybe it it, it shouldn't. Um, and and there's lots of roles in our lives where we become caregivers. I recently, you know, had some time when I got to spend um, taking care of my my grandmother and and her and towards her last the end of her life. And I had a really distinct feeling that like I was a better caregiver to her because I had become a mother and I felt confident in it and I I did feel like I was sort of better at understanding what she needed and how to respond to it because of that and that was really profound to me and and it's something that I think we need to more directly acknowledge and value um, across our society. So you describe in your book motherhood as a developmental stage much like puberty. Can you explain that? Adolescence is a time when we we know that there are huge hormonal changes. We know that it's a time that is fundamentally adaptive. You know, we now know from the brain science that there's changes in the in the um, activity and in the structure of the brain in that time. And we know that it's a time that comes with really dramatically increased risk of mental illness. And so it is adaptive, and it is also a time of vulnerability. And a parenthood is a lot like that. Huge hormonal shifts, major changes in, in behavior, um, dramatically increased risk of, of 
um, of mental illness and and we know it is fundamentally adaptive and it is preparing us to to become parents to become caregivers to like engage in this what will be a lifelong experience of of caring for others um, and I think there's real value in looking at, at, at those similarities and how we have used the brain science around the teenage brain to, to make better policies and to change the conversation with parents and with teenagers themselves about what that time of life means for them and how to support themselves and, and each other through it. And I, I think there's a lesson for that in the parental brain, too. I think we could do something similar with the science. Well, I think you're advocating for a new vocabulary word. Let's replace motherhood with familyhood or parenthood uh, as a phase that we all should go through. So I have a question to ask you. You and your husband were both professionals while you became parents. Can uh, a couple have two equal careers at the same time while they're building a family? Yeah, it's so hard. I've, I have been lucky that my husband is is so invested in both our family and in his career and sees value in mine as well. It is a real struggle. And honestly, I have seen him in some ways struggle more than me in, the, in, the, in realizing that he is sacrificing some of his career in order to be so engaged at home and that many of the men in his field are not doing that either because they don't have children or they don't have the same um, shared responsibilities at home as we do and he struggles a lot with how to reconcile that and feeling like he might be falling behind you know his his gears and um, I <laughs> this, the, the issue that I have here is that so much of this is presented as you know individual an individual battle that we have to figure out on our own for our own families but really in the problem is so often structural you know we don't have paid leave we don't have affordable child care those are two huge things that affect our ability to have family and career and there are two things that we can actually do something about and many of us do not have an uh, a grandma or an abuela home yes. to take care of all that stuff that uh, we all have to do as families so uh chelsea um do you believe uh parenthood makes a, a person smarter you said that in your book what do you mean by that there are many ways to be smart. <laughs> you know, there are many ways to be enlightened. I just, I do think that parenthood is one way that we can can do those things. I mean, I, I, I what it is a parenthood is a real cognitive challenge, lifelong, complex social demands, and there are benefits to that over the long term and and in the short term as well. And um, I, I, that's such a uh, counterpoint to what we often hear about the frazzled, forgetful mother. Um, and it, that's an idea that I think we should um, retire because the truth is much more complicated than that. Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Christy Dicko. And I'm Maura Carlin.